Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz's trip last week to the Gulf Kingdom of Bahrain, Israel Gulf security ties more generally in the wake of the Abraham Accords, lasers, yes, lasers, as well as recent events in the West Bank with the tragic death of 78-year-old Palestinian-American Omar Assad. To help us make sense of these important stories, as well as what it's like to actually cover the unforgiving military beat here in Israel, we have on with us Judah Ari Gross, the military correspondent at the Times of Israel, and Anna Ehrenheim, the military correspondent at the Jerusalem Post, both of whom were with Benny Gantz in Bahrain last week. This was an important and wide-ranging conversation about the new Middle East and also, sadly, elements of the old Middle East. Let's get into it. Judah and Anna, welcome. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's my pleasure. So you're both recently back from a field trip to Bahrain, along with Defense Minister Benny Gantz, uh, that visited the kingdom in the Gulf last Wednesday and Thursday. You know, on the one hand, this was rather prosaic, I guess. Israeli leaders have been going to the Gulf fairly regularly since the Abraham Accords were signed in late 2020. Uh, I think it's exceptional how unexceptional these trips have all become. But it did have a greater significance in terms of military ties and, and defense ties, right? So I wanted to start here. Uh, when did you both hear about this trip? When was it planned? How did it come about? Uh, Judah? When did you first know that you were going on this field trip with Gantz to Bahrain? So they first announced it probably like a week, a week and a half uh, before the trip actually happened. Uh, it was originally supposed that we traveled, um, as you said, on Wednesday. We were originally supposed to travel on, um, let's say, Shabbat on Saturday night, um, like the previous Saturday night. But uh, Gantz, who had been who had tested positive for Corona, um, was still in quarantine at that point, so they postponed it a bit. Um, so it was sort of known that this was happening, but things were a bit up in the air as they were sorting out the the scheduling um, in advance of the trip. Okay. And Anna, just on a personal level, when did you tell your family that you were heading overseas on this sneaky quick visit with the defense minister? I, I told my, my family that we were going when we got the message. I didn't say where we were going, just that we're... I'm going to be flying for for a few hours because it really was just a, a day and a bit. Um, I had to get all of the logistics of, you know, taking care of the kid and the dogs and babysitting and all of that. So I told them right right away. I told my husband. Um, but I only let him know really what I needed the, to get the PCR test. I'll be going to, to Bahrain. So you told, you told them where you were going? Yeah, but that was, a, you know, the day before, a few hours before. Um Okay, but like you said, he wasn't shocked that it was going to be to a Gulf state. He, you know, watches the news just like everybody else, and he knows that Israelis have been going to to the Gulf states and even Morocco, and it's not something um, crazy surprising, to put it that way. Right. Uh, like I said, rather prosaic these days, but maybe some interesting things, some important things came out of the trip. Uh, I guess the headline that the Israeli side put out was a signing of a defense memorandum of understanding between Israel and Bahrain, uh, intelligence sharing, military-to-military ties, uh, industrial collaboration, uh, whatever that means. 
Uh, Anna, what did what was the biggest takeaway over the past two days from your end? Well, I, I think um, what I what I got from the trip is that um, the the ties that were firmly established with that signing of the deal were were there for years before, mm. albeit covert and and not really reported. Um, what what I found really really interesting was at the actual signing of the MOU at the Bahrain's um, military defense headquarters, uh, comparable to the Kiria in Tel Aviv in Israel, was that it was signed behind uh, sorry in front of a giant um, picture showing two parts of uh, Bahrain's military. And one, on one hand, a more historical. Um, aspect. On the other hand, the more recent. And on the historical, in the background, you see the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Oh. So uh, Jerusalem was there. It was in the room. Um, but it was also very interesting to see how friendly everybody seemed. Uh, so that was also very, very interesting for me. So Gantz got a very warm welcome by the Bahrainis. Uh, Judah, what do you think? What was the biggest takeaway from your point of view? I think one of the things that was interesting was that this was a trip to uh, Bahrain and not to uh, the UAE. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously in the in the few days before Gantz traveled to Bahrain, uh, President Herzog traveled. Um, you know, did travel to the UAE. Obviously, the the ties between Israel um, and Abu Dhabi are very um, are very strong. Um, but I think it was. Sort of the, the there was very much an emphasis that this is the first uh, memorandum of understanding um, being signed between Israel and a country in the Gulf, and it was not sort of the larger um, military power um, of the UAE, but the comparatively smaller Bahrain. You know, not to knock Bahrain; it's a perfectly um, significant and strategic country with the fifth not fleet, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, you know, but I think it's significant also that this was, you know, to to Bahrain and not and not yet to the UAE. That this was, um, you know, of the three kind of four countries um, with which Israel has normalized ties under the Abraham Accords or during the Abraham Accords. Um, you know, the second country that gets a security uh, MOU is Bahrain. The first being Morocco uh, a few months ago. Right. So the second. Uh, Abraham Accords country to sign this MOU. And like you said, it wasn't the UAE, which was a bit surprising. Uh, Other than this image of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the background, did the Palestinian issue come up at all during this trip? Judah? No. Um, The Palestinian issue was not, you know, was certainly not at the forefront um, during this trip. I mean, Bahrain, um, you know, we certainly received uh, a very warm uh, welcome um, during during this trip uh, as a, a kosher keeper, sort of the both the Bahrainis and the Israeli embassy in Bahrain sort of made great strides to bring in kosher food and things like that. It was very warm, you know, hosp- you know, hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Bahrain does have um, dissidents. You know, it does have people who oppose um, the normalization with Israel. Um, you know, it's still a pretty firmly held country um, in terms of, you know, regime control over the population. But there is still sort of areas that are certainly more um, more opposed to Israel because of the, you know, because of the Palestinian issue. Um, you know, that was certainly not on display during Gantz's trip in, in any of the um, sort of formal proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the, the understanding that the defense officials who were on the trip had is that you know, the, these countries in the Gulf, these countries that are normalizing ties with Israel, 
Um, they may still care about the Palestinian issue, um, but they're not going to let it um, interfere with their ties with Israel. So there's sort of no huge reason for it to come up in these kinds of negotiations, which are strictly sort of between um, between Manama and Jerusalem, and not you know, and not Ramallah. Um, so I think that's a you know that was definitely seen here, where there was sort of no mention except for. Um, you know, there's no mention of the Palestinian issue except for in questions of journalists asking if the Palestinian issue came up. Right, uh, which makes sense, but they downplayed it. Uh, Anna, the issue that Gantz definitely emphasized uh, in his public remarks was Iran and the threat uh, to both the Gulf and Israel coming out of Iran. Uh, how overt was Iran in terms of the Bahraini's comments and the overall context for the trip? The Bahrainis uh, that I spoke to said, you know, Iran is there. We know we're not very far from Iran. I think it's about 200, 300 kilometers away, just across a, it's a short boat ride away. Um, but the Bahraini official that I spoke to said it's there, but it's not our major concern, hmm. um, which is not, you know, how Israel views it. Israel views Iran as the big concern and, and they want to have um you know a regional type of um let's say the, the mou that was signed here was in order to make sure that there is an ally close to iran that israel can count on um so i think that while the officials wouldn't come out of you know and, and tell me as a journalist yes it, it's a big concern for us and that's why we're signing uh with the israelis um like like Judah said, there has, you know, Iran is an issue. There have been attacks. It's a strategic er, uh, country of interest for Iran, Bahrain. It's sitting um, in a very, very important location. There's a lot of uh, a big Shia community in, in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that while Iran has, try, uh, has been trying a lot also uh, in Bahrain, other uh, Gulf kingdoms, to have more of an influence and not just, you know, the, the hostilities that we're seeing, but also more of an economic influence. I think that that's uh, something that Israel is also taking into account. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it might've been uh, the real subtext, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't stated uh, as, as front and center, maybe as the Israeli side would have, would have hoped mm -hmm. or at least expected. Um, Gantz on his two day visit, uh, it wasn't just with the Bahrainis, it was also with the Americans. Uh, as Judah mentioned, uh, Bahrain is the home of the U.S. 5th Fleet, which is the U.S. Navy fleet responsible for the Gulf that's based out of Bahrain. Uh, it also comes after Israel was admitted to CENTCOM last year, which is the U.S. command responsible for the entire Middle East. So how did Gantz's visit with the Americans go? Uh, Judah, let's start with you. Yeah, so... Um... On the more, you know, on Thursday morning, the first uh, real stop of the trip um, was to uh, the U.S. Fifth Fleet's base in um, on, in Bahrain. Coming along on this trip with Gantz um, was the Israeli Navy Chief uh, Chief uh, David Salama, um, and together uh, they toured uh, the USS Cole, which was docked in um, in Bahrain. Mm. Um, so the USS Cole is significant for two reasons. Um, I mean, for a number of reasons, but sort of uh, for our purposes, two reasons. One um, being 
um, that it was targeted in 2000 by Al Qaeda. Um, and sort of the night before was um, the US military's raid um, in northern Syria against the Islamic State, uh, you know, the, the new Islamic State leader. leader. Um, so sort of that connection between uh, sort of radical Al Qaeda Islamic State uh, terror uh, was on display with the visit to the USS Cole. Um, and today the USS Cole is also heading to, um, to the UAE uh, to provide uh, additional defense uh, systems um, against the sort of ongoing um, ballistic missile and drone attacks from the from uh, Yemen's Houthis uh, against the UAE. So that's sort of it's both heading into this area that is sort of deeply connected um, to the Iranian issue in the Gulf, and also sort of more generally um, sort of playing into the the drama that had happened the night before of uh, you know counterterrorism operations. Um, so Gantz met with the head of the Fifth Fleet, Brad Cooper. Um, who's a very nice, soft-spoken man. Um, and, you know, the two had lunch together. You know, there was clearly a very warm uh, relationship going on. Um, the Israeli relationship with the Fifth Fleet, you know, did not suddenly come into being um, with Israel's move to CENTCOM uh, in September. Um, you know, it's something that's lasted for a lot longer, but now these things are coming much more um, to the fore. So, you know, Israel is currently taking part in a, um, you know, Fifth Fleet-led exercise um, alongside some of the other partners, including countries that Israel doesn't have normalized ties with, like Saudi Arabia and Yemen um, and Somalia and, you know, sort of lots of other ones. Um, so, you know, you're seeing this, this relationship that began, you know, a long time ago just because Israel is situated in the Middle East where CENTCOM operates. Um, but now that it's been formalized sort of with the move to CENTCOM, it's allowed to develop that much further, more formal, you know, more open ties, more um, connections between lower ranking officers um, because sort of they're, they're operating with one another much more frequently now. Yeah, it is incredible that uh, for decades, Israel was not part of CENTCOM because of Arab opposition. And now it is very much part of CENTCOM, very quickly part of CENTCOM, uh, including this big naval exercise that also happened last week out of Bahrain, uh, what was termed, I think, the IMX naval exercise. Uh, 60 countries, including, like you said, Judah, Saudi Arabia, Oman, that Israel doesn't have official ties with. Um, and that Israeli naval units, I suppose, were taking part in the Gulf and the Red Sea and around that neighborhood. Uh, Anna, what more do we know about Israel's involvement in this naval exercise? Well, I mean, it's it's still ongoing, uh, I believe. And I think um, hmm. just this past Sunday, just a few days ago, yesterday, um, was actually the start of the the actual exercise at sea. The week before was all the logistics and discussions and more of a um, get together to to meet the forces. Um, now, every like 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 you said, it's in the Red Sea, the the Persian Gulf, and all of these uh, countries taking part are are doing the exercise in those various arenas. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not a hundred percent sure that Israeli naval forces will interact with. The Yemenis, for example, I tried to pull it out of a few officials, you know, asking, is there going to be any actual interaction between the Israeli forces and countries that we don't have ties with? 
uh, kept their mouth quite uh, <laughs> not answer. No, 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 no comment was a very popular remark to to that question. But um, it would be interesting to see if um, Israeli forces do actually uh, work with the Saudis, for example, who, though they have not yet signed um, any normalization agreement with Israel, they've allowed Israel Israeli planes to use their airspace. Uh, we flew over Saudi Arabia when we flew to Bahrain, and it was the first time um, that an Israeli Air Force plane was publicly flying over Saudi Arabia back and forth. Right. Um, so it could be very well that Israeli forces will train with the Saudis. Um, I don't see why that wouldn't happen. If they're going to be training with the Bahrainis and the Emiratis, there's no reason why they wouldn't train with the Saudis. The, the Yemenis, though, it would be it would be very, you know, interesting to see them all training together. Um, I, I do think that uh, because Israel has worked for decades with the with the American forces and, and have really strengthened their ties with the Fifth Fleet, that, um, mm-hmm. you know, this would just be another participation, just another exercise, which will be, you know, there'll be more and more and more of these. Uh, a few months ago, the the Marines and, uh, and NAVSENT also came to Israel for a large drill. Uh, so I think it's just, right. Southern Israel. Yeah. It's just, you know, a pattern. It's going to continue. It's not going to be something special and, and, uh, you know, unexpected in the future. Right. Judah, did you want to add anything? Um, yeah, just, um, sort of, well, people, you know, as Anna said, sort of kept, uh, kept relatively mum on what exactly, um, the cooperation during this exercise would entail. Um, you know, a spokesperson for uh, the U.S. Fifth Fleet um, sort of made it clear that, you know, there was no, everyone knew that this is not like a, an exercise that suddenly came together. There were multiple rounds of planning sessions. Sort of everybody who's participating knew who else was participating. Um, and the, in this case, you know, this doesn't necessarily always happen. Um, but in this case, you know, the, the Fifth Fleet put out a list of here are the, the countries and also some organizations like NATO and Interpol. You know, these are the countries that are taking part um, in the organi- you know, in this exercise. And you can sort of see in black and white Israel next to Saudi Arabia, Oman, uh, Yemen, Somalia, um, etc. So, um, you know, on the one hand, people are not going to say like, oh, yeah, we're in the same group and training together on this, that or the other. Um, but on the other hand, sort of there's no attempt to keep it secret or to not mention it. Or you've got a, you know, in the past there have been is, you know, Air Force exercises led by the United States where, uh, you know, Pakistan and the UAE and Israel were all taking part. Um, But, you know, before Israel had uh, normalized ties with the UAE when that was still news, um, you know, but, you know, you could only find out by looking at the photos that came out and seeing, you know, the flags on the different aircraft. And then you can sort of piece together who took part. You know, in this case, this was very... There was no attempt to to hide the fact that Israel and Saudi Arabia were taking part in an exercise together at sea, which is also, I think, interesting. At sea is a bit like uh, there's Israeli some Israeli naval officials have sort of pointed out that doing things at sea is nice because it's far away and people don't see you, and it's you know a little bit hidden in a certain way, <laughs> um, and you can sort of do things at sea that you couldn't do sort of on land uh, in view of satellites and photographers and whatever. And at sea, you're sort of in your own domain and there's no one else around. Right. Various aviation trackers on Twitter. 
seeing who's coming and going in the region. Uh, on that point, this uh, this brave new world in the Middle East that we're living in at the moment, there was a report yesterday in the Wall Street Journal from our good friends at the Journal that Israel and the UAE uh, may be discussing joint missile defense. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, the Houthi rebels out of Yemen have been firing uh, missiles and drones at at Abu Dhabi and Dubai over the last two weeks. Uh, three people have been killed so far. And so the timing, I think, is is important. It's interesting. Uh, and yet the Wall Street Journal report also said that uh, while discussions have been taking place uh, and that potentially the Iron Dome, Israel's vaunted Iron Dome missile defense might be involved, that it was still unlikely that the Iron Dome would be deployed or sold, let's say, to to the UAE. Uh, so, Anna, what do you think about this report? Obviously, the need on the part of the UAE is is real, uh, and yet, if it's not the Iron Dome, then what would it be? Well, I, I also wrote um, yesterday as well that Israel and Gulf states are in discussions to figure out what system would be best uh, to counter the threats that they face. Because um, Israel has many different air defense systems. Yes, the Iron Dome is, is you know, the most famous, and the Americans have bought batteries uh, from Israel. But there's also the Barak Shmone, uh, the Barak 8, mm-hmm. uh, the Spider system. There's the David Sling system. There's the Arrow. There, there's also counter drone uh, systems that Israeli defense industries have come up with, like the Drone Dome. Um, and all of these have uh, have come up with both Bahraini, UAE um, officials with this, uh, during this meetings with the, with the Israelis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that they need to have. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of these attacks coming and they're not going to disappear. They're only going to increase. And while the UAE does have a formidable air defense system, it's not enough. They just bought a South Korean uh, system, but I don't think they're going to get it until at least 2024, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, so they need something now. They can't just rely on American uh, Patriot batteries or or other system that they have. Uh, so now with the MOU being signed with Bahrain, um, th- even though Bahrain hasn't been hit by any sort of attack like like this, it's not far-fetched to imagine that you know an, a, a new um, ally to Israel uh, one that's really not so far from Yemen or from Iraq or from Iran, because we've also seen attacks from Iraq uh, hitting the UAE. Um, right. So it it makes sense that this is a major uh, point of interest. And Judah, uh, what do you think would be the obstacles for Israel to sell these types of missile and rocket defenses to to the UAE and to the Gulf? It's not as simple as just as just making the sale and, and shipping it over, right? Yeah. So for, I mean, it sort of depends on the system. There are some that are, um, the components of them are more, Israel would feel more comfortable um, selling and others that it would feel less comfortable selling. Um, sort of that was partially a sticking point um, in some of the negotiations between Israel and the U.S. over the Iron Dome um, that, you know, you can sell you know, it's easy to think of, you know, the Iron Dome as as a system, but um, you can have export versions of a system that don't allow sort of full control over, um, you know, over its components um, in terms of access to like the source codes. Um, and that 
um, you know, provides a little bit of, you don't necessarily want to sell the UAE. Here's sort of the keys to the kingdom in terms of how the Iron Dome works and what its algorithms are uh, and things like that, which, mm -hmm. you know, if a country like Iran got its hands on, it could potentially use that information to find ways to beat the Iron Dome. Um, and so Israel can develop um, sort of export versions that, you know, keep that source code um, secret and encrypted and not available. So even if, uh, you know, Iran had a spying apparatus in the UAE and they got their hands on, um, you know, the Iron Dome, they wouldn't be able to find much uh, of value in terms of how to beat the system. Um, so there's things like that that um, are certainly um, an option, but at the same time, not having access to that source code for the country that's buying it uh, also limits their ability to sort of make the, the system meet their demands um, and, you know, combat the threats that they are facing. So there's a bit of a sort of push and pull um, over things like that. Um, also, the Iron Dome is, uh, is very famous um, because it's been used so much in, in Gaza and also on the northern border. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as Anna mentioned, there's the Barack 8, there's the David Sling, you know, there's a number of other um, options out there. And also there's sort of the components that make those up. So there's also you know, powerful radar arrays and command and control centers, and as well as the sort of missiles themselves. So, um, you know, there's potentially different components. There's also um, ways of connecting, um, you know, radar arrays from different countries to provide a better picture, um, which, um, you know, that is also an option to making, um, you know, giving Israel access to the radar arrays in the UAE and sort of vice versa and giving everyone sort of a better picture in terms of missile defense um, capabilities. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, those are sort of the main issues is how do you sell these systems that are very desirable and have, you know, are battle tested and proven, um, without necessarily giving away all of your trade secrets, um, particularly in countries that are very close geographically to Iran, which would be, you know, potentially easier for Iran to infiltrate and collect, collect intelligence from, um, than in Israel itself. So that's, right. uh, I mean, I think those are sort of some of the main, main issues and how Israel goes about exporting these these technologies. Agreed. Uh, it's interesting to my mind that obviously Israel has been dealing with uh, rockets and missiles now for several decades, I would argue. Uh, but only recently, I guess in recent years, uh, the Gulf states have encountered the same, the same security problem coming out of Yemen, coming out of Iraq, coming out of Iran. Uh, you know, it's a real threat that Israel has been dealing with now uh, for a long time. Uh, and it's a threat that can't really be handled successfully from the air, just via airstrikes. Uh, and that's something Israel has learned uh, on its own uh, in a very difficult way, both in Gaza and Lebanon. Uh, so just by way of of emphasizing the shared security threats uh, that both Israel and, and now the Gulf states share. Uh, on this issue of missile defense, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Are we going to are we going to talk about space lasers? <laughs> <laughs> you you're you're absolutely right. Uh, space lasers, laser walls, and all of that. So uh, Prime Minister Bennett made made headlines, I guess, last week at a security conference here in Tel Aviv when he said that Israel was in the process of developing these uh, missile defense laser systems that he said would be deployed at least to southern Israel around Gaza within a year, and then perhaps in another two years after that, that it would be deployed everywhere, uh, including in northern Israel and at sea and in the air. Uh, I think the nuance might have gotten lost uh, during the blaring headlines about 
Israeli space lasers and the like. Uh, but Anna, what uh, what can you tell us about this this laser systems that are in process and and really the timeline isn't you know tomorrow or even in a year that these things are going to be actually operational, right? No, 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 no. There, I mean. I, I actually had a, a very interesting interview a few months ago with the head of Mafat, uh, the Defense Ministry's Directorate of Research and Development, um, Danny Gold, and we had a specific discussion on these, you know, Israeli space lasers. And he said that it's going to be another decade before Israel's going to be able to to down missiles from a long range with lasers. It's going to be mm. a few years before a prototype is ready, even though they've been working really, really hard on the system. It's the number one priority uh, for them, especially after what we saw in May with the huge barrages of missiles from Gaza. Um, The military has even asked uh, defense industries that are cooperating on this project to to work even harder on it and and to to bring um, developments out quicker. Uh, But it's not going to be another year uh, before they're deployed or before they're even, you know, ready to have real uh, field tests with them. Now, on the ride back from Bahrain, um, I was listening to a conversation that uh, Gantz was actually having with a few other journalists, and they asked him specifically on this, what did you think of Bennett's comments about the lasers? <laughs> <laughs> and he he took a a pause there and he looked around he's like do you really want me to comment on this <laughs> so it, it's quite clear what the defense ministry thinks about um bennett's comments on on the fact that it's there he's dreaming if it's going to be ready uh for use in the next year right he might have uh, the prime minister might have been uh, overstating things uh to a great extent um judah if and when these systems are deployed why would they be game changers? Explain the the both operational dynamic and also the economic dynamic of of uh, quote unquote space lasers in in our neck of the woods. Uh, um, if I could just jump on sort of another part of the the chutzpah um, that was uh, displayed by uh, Bennett in making this uh, sort of grand announcement about uh, lasers being deployed to shoot down rockets um, is also that sort of a lot of the funding that led to the developments. Um, in the creation of these systems um, was approved and pushed and pushed for by um, one of his predecessors as defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman. Um, so he's kind of taking credit and pushing and like uh, taking credit for something that um, another another defense minister um, is really responsible for pushing. Uh, and he's doing it in this sort of uh, too soon way. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so... Um, the, the, the reason why this is a game changer um, is because lasers don't run out of ammunition. I mean, as long as they are connected to a power source, you can shoot down uh, as many rockets um, as, are, as are coming. It normally takes you know, a few seconds for them to be trained on um, whatever rocket or drone or uh, you know, whatever or missile uh, or whatever else is, is heading over um, for them to be shot down. Whereas um, you know, in the case of the Iron Dome, which used Tamir interceptor missiles, um, they can run out. I mean, this is an issue that, um, you know, is a very, it's a bit of a consideration um, in terms of Gaza. It's called, you know, war economies where you have to think about wh- how you're using your, your munitions. Um, and especially in a case like um, Hezbollah in Lebanon, which has, a, you know, an enormous arsenal of 
um, mortar shells, rockets, missiles, um, what you know, you right. name it. Um, the ability to shoot down all of them, you know, even if that was possible, you know, the the Iron Dome normally hovers around ninety percent um, efficiency in terms of uh, shooting down rockets that are heading towards populated areas. But if you're talking about you know tens upon tens of thousands of of you know of rockets or missiles or or mortar shells or drones that are coming over the border all of a sudden uh the israeli military is going to have to start deciding uh which of those gets shot down um and the the terrifying thing uh as an israeli civilian who you know who lives here um is that um the priority is going to go to you know major national infrastructure uh power plants uh, the uh, ammonia containers, um, you know, chemical chemical uh, storage facilities, you know, things like that that have major, um, you know, military bases, air force right. bases, um, you know, these types of things are going to get the priority and not the community full of civilians necessarily, because one is going to be, you know, at most you're talking about a, f a few people being killed, whereas, you know, if there's a major chemical spill, you're talking about thousands of people being affected. Um, you know, and that comes into play when you have shortages of um, munitions. That's less of an issue when you have lasers that never run out. Um, so that's sort of really what makes this uh, a bit of a game changer. Um, and as Anna said, I mean, we could see huge barrages coming over um, in in May during that conflict. You know, in the span of um, a, a week and a half, there were, you know, there was nearly as many rockets fired from Gaza as there were during the 50-day um, war in 2014. Just the, the ability to develop and launch rockets has improved um, incredibly over, over the past few years. And there's no reason to assume it's not going to continue to do so. So being able to shoot down those massive quantities of rockets that are now being produced in Gaza um, and in Lebanon and in Syria and in Yemen and, and Iraq, you know, this is, um, this is a significant capability that Israel uh, pretty clearly needs. And yet, may not happen uh, anytime soon as Anna Anna laid out uh but yeah I agree it would be it would be a major shift uh not just dependent anymore on these uh interceptor missiles that a cost a lot and b are um you know you need to have them in store uh but yeah lasers lasers could uh could change the equation unfortunately not anytime soon before we finish up, I wanted to shift from the Gulf and space lasers to something closer to home, uh, the West Bank. Uh, so a few days ago, the IDF concluded it's uh, what they call a command investigation um, into the tragic death of uh, a 78-year-old Palestinian man, Omar al-Majid Assad, uh, who was stopped a few weeks ago in the middle of the night at an IDF checkpoint in the central West Bank. He was taken out of his car, he was gagged, he was handcuffed, and then he was left in a nearby courtyard uh, in the middle of the night. The IDF soldiers uh, manning the checkpoint noticed that something was wrong, uh, but instead of helping him, they just essentially left him in this courtyard, and he uh, ultimately died of a heart attack. Uh, it's important to note that he was also an American citizen, not that this should be the be-all and end-all uh, to, to such an event, but it did have an impact in Washington, and, and obviously the State Department and the Biden administration are, are following this, this issue and this investigation closely. Um, just in terms of context, the IDF commander's investigation called it a grave and unfortunate event, a clear lapse in moral judgment on the part of the soldiers responsible. 
uh, it was careless and it violated the IDF's core values, uh, which is the protection of human life. Uh, Anna, let's start with you. What did you think of the uh, command investigation? Uh, it seemed like the battalion commander was reprimanded and uh, two lower ranking officers were, uh, I guess, removed from their positions. But beyond that, right, nothing, nothing beyond that. Uh, no, no, nothing, uh, nothing yet, because there's still a military uh, police investigation that's happening. Uh, so we could see right. more um, uh, measures being taken against those involved. And, and but I don't see that them being being charged in any way with his death, unfortunately. Um, but I do have to say that would this have happened? Would this investigation really have happened and happened so quickly if he wasn't American? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. Uh, sad to say. Um, and Netzach Yuda has been involved in a series of very um, awful um, events with uh, Palestinians, be it uh, torture, both physically or mental um, cases. Uh, there have been troops that have been uh, convicted in the past of, of you know, tor- torturing Palestinians, beating them uh, after arresting them. But I think that there is mm-hmm. something that needs to be done uh, to Netzach overall. There has to be um, a change in the mentality of, of those that are serving. When you have uh, settlers uh, like Hilltop youth um, serving in this type of, of unit, what, what, what would you expect? Do you expect them to, to give roses to, to Palestinians that they stop? No, they're they're um, you're not going to see that. I think that there really has to be. I think this event has to be a, a wake up call for the military um, that something has to be done with Netzach Yehuda. Right, and Netzach Yehuda is this battalion that was responsible for this uh, for this grave event last month. Uh, it's a, I guess, fairly new infantry battalion made up of, like you said, uh, oftentimes settler or hilltop youth also uh, uh former ultra-orthodox or uh, let's say lighter ultra-orthodox israeli men uh who who want to serve and this is the the unit that uh that they end up in uh for some reason this this infantry unit is is always deployed in the west bank uh and so there's a lot of friction constant friction between the unit and uh palestinians um, so that also, I think, is is being looked into by the IDF whether to, you know, actually keep it in the West Bank. Uh, I don't know why you would uh, continue deploying this unit in the West Bank. Uh, Judah, what more can you tell us about this uh, Netzach Yehuda battalion? Sure. So, um, yeah, Netzach Yehuda um, was, you know, formed under this name of the Nachal Haredi, and the idea was that it was going to be a unit for ultra-Orthodox soldiers. You know, the, the IDF is constantly engaged in this effort, um, sometimes by itself, sometimes because of uh, government decision, um, but it's constantly in this effort to try to recruit um, ultra-Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox soldiers. Uh, and in order to provide them sort of a softer landing spot, as opposed to the rest of the military where there's constant interaction between men and women, um, this unit was created as a combat unit that would be sort of men only, you know, with limited interaction with women. Um, it's sort of baked in that they would have time for prayer, for religious study, um, that their food would be at a higher sort of kashrut certification um, and things like that. Um, in practice, it does not have 
too, too many um, sort of strictly ultra-Orthodox members. A lot of them are what's known in Israel as Hardal, sort of Haredi Lomi, which is sort of this sort of more lowercase c conservative um, sort of side of the settler community, of the religious Zionist community. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are also former ultra-Orthodox um, who are still looking to have some kind of a connection. Um, in practice, it generally means that um, a lot of the people who serve in it um, are coming from a sort of pro-settler mentality. Um, and so there's not only cases of, um, there have not only been cases in Netzach Yehuda of, you know, soldiers being convicted of um, abusing Palestinians, but also of them fighting with police officers um, over um, evictions or other sort of settlement related issues in the West Bank. Um, in, in this case, um, just to um, carry on with what uh, Anna was saying, I mean, I think the this was sort of the disciplinary, um, sort of internal disciplinary issue. There's the ongoing police investigation. Um, but I, I think um, this investigation was sort of woefully um, insufficient. Mm. Um, the, the, it looked sort of very specifically at the, at, which is not a, it's not a bad thing in investigation. Should look at the facts sort of leading up to uh, Omar Assad's death, um, but it really didn't take into consideration in any real way um, sort of the culture of the unit um, and how you come to a point where um, you see an 80-year-old man on the ground um, in the middle of January, where it's, if not literally freezing, then just above freezing, mm-hmm. um, and don't think, and think to just leave him there. I mean, the uh, the issue is that he suffered um, heart failure um, sort of around the time shortly after um, his arrest, um, and the soldiers saw him sort of on the ground, not moving. And they thought he was sleeping. Um, but thought he was, they thought he was sleeping. Doesn't which make it better. Uh, the, is kind of being offered. No, it makes it as as bad, if not worse, because it means that he was on the ground in an unfinished building, um, sleeping in literal freezing temperatures in the middle of January. And the soldiers were going to leave him to die of hypothermia, if not to die of heart failure, as, as he did. Um, and it didn't really take into a you know, you saw a bit of what I would say um, is efforts by certain Israeli uh, officers to sort of cover their butts and to come out against something that's clearly awful um, in the days before the investigation was released, sort of saying, you know, condemning them and saying, oh, they didn't see him, you know, they didn't see him as a person and great moral failing and just sort of repeating over and over again that this was uh, a moral failing by um, the officers, you know, the two officers who were, you know, low-ranking officers, very junior officers who were dismissed from their position. Um, but it, it didn't really, there was no real reckoning with how you come to a position where you don't see um, an 80-year-old man as a person, where you're making a decision that this 80-year-old man was was stopped at a checkpoint who refused to identify himself and show ID, The that a decision was made to, you know, violently sort of tackle him to the ground um, zip tie his hands together, blindfold him, put a gag in his mouth. You know, that, that decision was made and not, he's an 80 year old man. There doesn't seem to be any indication that he's involved in terrorist activities and let him go or detain him and put him in his heated car while you figure out who he is and determine, you know, make a determination if you think there is a concern that he could be, um, involved in terrorist activities. Sort of there was, the the decision to just immediately employ violence uh, and then to leave him to freeze to death 
um, sort of was not really dealt with in this investigation. And it's not particularly a police matter that should be investigated on the police side, sort of developing a, a bad culture of not viewing Palestinians as human beings uh, is not really a, a, a crime in a in a way that's going to be prosecuted by the military um, by the military police and by the military advocate general. So that sort of is not being um, dealt with. Um, this is being framed sort of as a discussion about you know now uh, there's more calls to break up um, Netzach Yehuda um, in light of this sort of because of the culture that's developed in in this unit. Um, just to, the, it is permanently deployed in the West Bank, but it's specifically deployed um, in the in the Binyamin region, which is sort of central um, central West Bank. Um, so what's happening now, uh, or what's really being rolled out in the more immediate future, is to deploy it elsewhere in the West Bank to sort of move them around. There's a, a belief in the military that sort of being deployed in one place for too long makes you a bit stir crazy. It leads to boredom, which can lead to um, which can lead to disciplinary issues and and potentially crimes. And so that's why elsewhere in the military, people are sort of constantly on the move. They're on the Lebanese border, and then they're in the West Bank, and then they're in training. Um, whereas, um, you know, in this case, you have 10 months of the year, um, Netzach Yehuda is deployed specifically in this sort of central West Bank region. Um, and the idea is that this way, at least, you're sort of breaking up the monotony of serving there and leading to, you know, potentially preventing this kind of, uh, um, this kind of, um, events from happening again, behavior. Um, and, and then sort of going forward, if not breaking up the unit entirely, um, you know, there are sort of considerations of deploying it like every other unit that they would do one stretch, you know, on the Gaza border, one stretch, you know, of training, one stretch, in the West Bank and sort of cycle them through, um, you know, all the different places that that um, um, that soldiers can be deployed in order to prevent this kind of thing. The dirty little secret is that the IDF likes the fact that this battalion is always deployed in the West Bank. It frees up, I think, other uh, actual serious combat units uh, to be deployed on the Gaza border, the Lebanon border, to go to train for future wars. Uh, but again, I don't think that's a good enough reason to uh, to keep the unit deployed in the West Bank, uh, dealing with Palestinian civilians. Look, it's I mean, it's we can I mean, there's a lot involved in this. I mean, you also saw during during 2015, 2016, when there was a lot of, um, you know, the, the stabbing attacks and car rammings and the border police were much more at the forefront um, of that. You saw, you know, people want to go where there's action. Um, and Netzach Yehuda, because they serve in these areas, um, there's a lot of action, which also brings in some of the people that otherwise would not necessarily enlist in the military. You know, there's there's a lot of different factors why the IDF has uh, a unit like Netzach Yehuda. Um, sort of part of the problem, and one one of the things that you hear frequently whenever there's criticism of the unit, um, you know, is the army saying that they they the arm that this unit is so deeply involved in counterterrorism work, and they've foiled so many attacks, um, and that's sort of an easy way to overlook the foibles of uh, foibles is a is a very uh, overly polite way of describing um, some of the things Excesses. that have been attributed to Netzach Yehuda, but sort of some of the issues involved in um, you know in that unit. Anna, what do you think? Is there any hope for the IDF actually taking a stronger hand uh, against Netzach Yehuda? Um, That's a good response. I hope so. 
I hope so. But um, I think it's a bit more complicated. Uh, it's a very complicated question. Um, I, I think that, you know, like Judah said, the, the culture that, that's in that, that that's in the unit and, and the fact that, yeah, there, there are just sedentary, you can say, in one place all the time. Um, mm-hmm. If they can possibly move them around uh, to the north, you know, in Lebanon, see how they are there. If if, does the culture change there? Um, if, if that's the case, then then maybe that that's the right way to go about it. But um, I think that there has to be there has to be a lot of work, a lot of work done in Atakhiuda, and I think overall in the West Bank um, about how the army is uh, is treating Palestinians. Yeah, yeah, a, a deeper rooted cultural issue, I guess, in how the IDF handles, yes, the occupation uh, beyond this one unit uh, and beyond this one incident, a uh, very tragic incident uh, that led to the the death of of a, an elderly Palestinian man who, like we said, also happened to be American. But like also the, I mean, sort of the reason why this happened in the first place in this terms of this specific incident was uh, it was sort of a pop-up random impromptu checkpoint um, within a Palestinian village. Um, and that is sort of one of the tools in the toolbox um, that's supposed to bring about a feeling among Palestinians that they're being watched, that the army is there, that there's a sense of them being um, near Daf, which is like being chased. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not chased as in modest, but chased as in being chased after. Um, and so this is sort of part of it is that that aspect of using violence and threats of violence against Palestinians is sort of part of the the IDF's um, and I, I mean you can say you can say that it works. I mean the 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 level of terrorism coming out of the West Bank has, in terms of um, you know actual violence against Israelis, has gone down considerably. Um, but you know it certainly is coming due to practices like you know, setting up checkpoints in the middle of the night and stopping people who are just on their way home from work or, you know... From um, a card game. Yeah, or other forms of sort of random collective punishment. And the IDF says, you know, oh, we've count, you know, we've prevented so many terror attacks by doing it. But that's sort of, to a certain extent, that's the secondary benefit. Sort of the primary issue is giving a feeling of we're watching you. You know, we're, we're, we, are, um, we are coming after you if you do something wrong. Um, and having an organization like Netzach Yehuda, which is known for being, for using force, uh, for for being sort of more aggressive on Palestinian terror, um, is certainly part of that. Um, and there definitely is sort of some kind of reckoning coming about what that you know what that means, um, and how that should be used. Anna, you want to add anything? No, no, I'm good. I think uh, Yehuda really uh, nailed it, nailed the point right there. Yeah, I'll just uh, sum up by saying that if you zoom out and you look at the new Israeli government that's been in power now for seven or eight months, uh, its its paradigm, shall we say, with regard to the Palestinian issue is shrinking the conflict. And if you're really committed to shrinking the conflict, then these types of checkpoints in Area A of the West Bank, right, full Palestinian civilian and security control, uh, are, are not shrinking the conflict. It leads to more friction, Uh, It leads to events like the one that took place last month and the loss of life. Uh, It 
doesn't do anything to shrink the conflict. It only, I think, increases friction and animosity and obviously leads to, you know, continued loss of life. So I think in terms of a big picture Israeli policy perspective, uh, wholly counterproductive. And it's, and it, again, we can go and we can focus on Netzach Yehuda and the unit on the ground that was ordered to set up this checkpoint and the way it handles its own business. But uh, up the chain of command and up to the government, I think there have to be uh, serious questions that need to be uh, need to be asked. So that's just my uh, my opinion. Uh, final question for you both. You're both uh, uh, longstanding military correspondents working here in Israel, uh, working for English language local outlets. Uh, how how do you manage the balance? Both the the demands of the beat, very hectic beat, even in the best of times. Uh, with your with your personal lives, uh, you both have families and and kids. Uh, Anna, what is it like to be a military correspondent here in Israel? Twenty four seven, knowing what's going on, uh, breaking news, whether it be you know an accident uh, like there was uh, with the friendly fire uh, incident that that claimed the lives of two officers or a terror attack. Um, it's very challenging. It's very demanding. But I'm someone that loves to work. I'm a workaholic. Maybe I get that uh, from my parents who, you know, only retired at 82. Um, but I I love uh, what I do. I think it's important to, to get the stories out there. Um, at the same time, though, I, I, I do have a young kid and I have uh, two dogs and it's very hard sometimes, um, especially when when my son was a newborn, um, and mm-hmm. not a newborn, but you know, six months old. I went back to work and had to deal him at the same time that the fighting in May broke out. That's when I finished my maternity oh, leave. Yes. So I would wake up in the morning. I would do an article about the overnight um, rocket attacks and if there were any deaths and any. Uh, retaliations over Gaza, bring the kid to to his nanny for the day, go down south, cover what was happening, pick him up, and then work on the floor while he's playing. Um, wow. And uh, I, I still do that. I still work um, while I'm watching the kid, while I'm trying to cook him dinner, I'm while I'm folding laundry, when I'm walking my dogs. You know, it, it's nonstop. But uh, I love it. You know, it's a, it's a lifestyle, really. Not just a job. Right. And a calling, I'm sure. Uh, Judah, how about on your end? How is it to be a, a military correspondent covering the hecticness of Israel? Um, yeah, I mean, Anna summed it up very quickly. It's uh, an incredibly demanding gig, and especially, you know, it was much easier for me to do when I was uh, single uh, and could sort of work from midnight to 5 a.m. and then sleep for, you know, five hours and then go back and work some more. And now having, um, I have two kids and one dog um, and uh, a wife. And uh, I also decided, you know, that was too easy. So I uh, have been doing a master's degree over the past year. Um, so I, I really um, like, it's it's been, it's difficult to do that. I think the doing it for um, an English language outlet, um, Sort of comes with its own difficulties, where there's um, 
you know, things that are maybe taken for granted uh, mm -hmm. for Hebrew speaking Israelis are not necessarily um, common knowledge among American, you know, among uh, English speakers, among, you know, most of our readers are um, foreign, probably in the US, um, you know, are abroad. Um, so certainly sort of having to explain um, different concepts, different events, uh, different figures, you know, why they're, what their significance is, um, you know, that's definitely something that um, I think is important to do. I think that's something that Israeli journalists should probably do more. There's a certain uh, expectation that everybody is reading the news 24-7, so you don't have to explain things. There's almost a shorthand in the Hebrew language press that, like you said, they can mention a operation that happened 20 years ago, and the expectation is that the Israeli readers will just know what that is. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this past... Um, past week or uh, maybe two weeks ago by this point, we, um, you know, marked the 25th anniversary of what's known as the helicopters disaster, Asona Misokim, um, when two sort of heavy transport helicopters collided, you know, collided, um, and 73 soldiers were killed. And they've done some studies and everyone in it, you know, any Jewish Israeli had some connection, um, you know, direct or indirect to one of those 73 people. So when you talk about Asona Misokim, that's all you have to say. You don't mm -hmm. have to explain it further. Everyone knows where they were, um, you know, in 1997 when those two helicopters went down and 73 soldiers were killed. Um, an English language, you know, an English language reader does not necessarily remember that as vividly that you have, you know, you have to provide sort of that background. And also why were heavy transport helicopters heading to, to Lebanon um, in 1997? Um, so things like that sort of need to be need to be explained a bit more. Um, there's also uh, things in Hebrew. You know, we we live in, in the world is flat, as it's been said. You know, everything is available to anyone, but most people don't read Hebrew. Um, so you know, information that's coming out. Um, it's I, I know that you know that. Um, the work that Anna and I and, and a few of our other sort of English language colleagues, Neri, um, obviously that you're also doing, um, is going to be read sort of more widely um, than um, our Hebrew speaking colleagues necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, there's also sort of a sense of awareness that whereas criticism that's happening within is, you know, as we're talking about Netzach Yehuda um, and, and this issue, it's something that's happening within Israeli society, um, but it sort of takes on a different uh, tone and a different significance um, when it's happening in English, especially with, you know, the, the recent release of the amnesty report and allegations of apartheid, right. um, you know, and, and, and things like that, it's, it sort of takes on a different balance um, that needs to be taken into consideration in some way or another when you're writing about these things in English, um, that you're, there's a sense of awareness that this isn't sort of a conversation that's happening um, at home among Israelis who have a certain baseline understanding of things and a, a certain consensus view on issues, it's happening sort of within the wider context of, you know, the English speaking world and um, people who have different politics as it relates to Israel and don't see um, Israel in the same way as, you know, Anna and I and, you know, other English language reporters who might be based in Israel um, feel. I mean, that shouldn't affect our, I mean, that shouldn't, it doesn't affect our, our reporting, mm -hmm. you know, truth is truth. But, um, you know, it's certainly something that I, I, I take into consideration that when there's, you know, that, uh, that I'm doing the best job possible to be um, objective, not in terms of the 
um, I think very weak and superficial understanding of both sides, you know, but actually providing um, the, the explanations of what's going on um, to people who can there, therefore make a better, more informed um, opinion, even if that is to be against Israel, to be against um, the IDF for having a unit like um, Netzach Yehuda um, or for the army's reluctance in cracking down on um, settler violence against Palestinians and left-wing Israeli activists and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I certainly take into consideration how this is being read and by whom um, in terms of how I do my reporting to make sure that I'm sort of giving all of the information necessary to make a, you know, a, a, a real informed decision about um, how you see this conflict. Right. Uh, and I, for one, am, am grateful for both your work and Anna's work, uh, despite the uh, the long hours and the difficult situation, especially with your families. Um, but really appreciate you both taking the time to come on today and and uh, talk about your trip to Bahrain and uh, a lot of other important issues. So thank you again. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay, that was Anna Ehrenheim and Judah Ari Gross. Many thanks to them again. Also thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>